Well, I'm very glad to be here this morning. Um, I'm a little dry in throat because I've had many, many flights, uh, long, long flights, like 26-hour type flights uh, in the last week or so. <laughs> and I just flew in last night from, uh, from South Africa. Uh, but hopefully my voice will be maintained and I'll be able to bring those ancient words that we were just singing about uh, just a minute ago. That song really reminds I haven't heard that song in years, many, many years. Uh, uh, and it reminded me of the preciousness of what we have preserved in front of us. I mean, this is God's word. This is the words of Christ delivered to us that we might know him, that we might understand who we are in this world, that we might understand true reality. Uh, it's an amazing thing to think that this has been passed on for 2,000 years almost at, at this point. Um, we really should approach the word with great carefulness, with respect, honor, and as we sit to listen to a, a flawed human being speak, we, we should pray that God himself will speak through those words and through the written word that we have before us. So if I may, um, may I lead us in prayer. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful that you, the God of the universe, this holy, majestic God, the one who had no need, the one who upholds all things, that you would condescend to care about mankind. And not mankind just as a whole, but that you care about us as individuals, young and old, and our little ones, our brothers, our sisters, our friends, our neighbors. We thank you, Lord, that you continue to care about men and women, and that you continue to work in our world. We pray, Lord, that even as we listen to this word this morning, that you would speak to us through it, that we might understand what was taking place between Jesus and this woman, that as a result of hearing your word once again, Lord, that our hearts would be touched. We pray, Lord, that our hearts and our minds would be open to you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I, I want to start by um, kind of making an assumption. Uh, this is a fairly familiar passage. My guess is that probably all of you, or at least most of you, have heard this story before. You've read it. Many, 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 many sermons have been preached from this text. Uh, and in fact, songs have been written about it. Uh, uh, seminars in evangelism have been preached or taught from, 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 the, from this passage. Uh, so I'm not expecting that much of it will be new, and, and I'm not going to, I know I'm going to have trouble with this fan. I'm, I'm so glad that the fan is blowing, though. But <laughs> we'll, we'll see if I, if I keep the page open to the right, the right spot. But um, uh, so I'm not going to go into a lot of the details of the text. I'm not going to try to help you understand all about the Samaritans or this mountain and that mo mountain and, and, and what they worshipped uh, 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 and where they worshipped and why. But what I want you to do this morning is I want to ask you to think with me about this woman. Who she was, what was driving her life, and what occurred between her and Jesus in this story at that well. So, so let me start with this. Who was she? And the first thing I want to, that we learn about her is that she was a despised person of a despised race, and of a despised gender. A despised person. If you look at verse 6, 
And, and I, I won't read it to you, but look at it just for a moment. What does it say? She came at noon, at midday. Most people that understand this text, most preachers that preach from this text, realize that that's a statement about who she was. She didn't come at the morning when all the other women would be there. She came in the heat of the day, one of the most difficult times of the day, I think to avoid the shame and the scorn that she experienced in her life. And I think there's several different pieces at points of the text that you see that she was, she was regarded as a woman of disrepute. I don't think a prostitute or anything like that. But she was, a, she was a woman who'd had five different husbands. And here she is living with a man. She's not married to him. In that society today, that was not acceptable. That, that was not okay. So I think she, she probably was regarded as, as an immoral person. Um, but she was also from a despised race. She was a Samaritan. And that, I'll say at least this much about the Samaritans. They were, they were considered as half-breeds. Uh, the, the pagan nations had intermarried with, with a number of the Hebrews, and they had, they had created a religion that was a mix of truth and error. So they were regarded as unclean. In fact, the, even the text says, Jews did not take anything from a Samaritan. They didn't interact with them verbally, neither would they take either food or drink. Uh, so she was, she was of a despised race. Um, and she was of a despised gender. Now, I, I need to be careful about this, but in that society, women were regarded as value and honor if they had children. If they did not have children, they were, they were disregarded. And in fact, if a woman lost her husband, either widowed by death or divorced, she had almost no means of support. She literally often had to, had to beg. Women were not, in many ways, highly valued in that, in that society. But what we find, even in this conversation that Jesus has with her, but actually much more in the centuries that would follow, Jesus is the one that changes that, actually restores the creation dignity that she had at the beginning. Women, in Jesus' ministry, in his interactions, and later, as we see within much of the history of the Christian church, were re-elevated to a position that was co-equal with men. They weren't of a, of a subject. They weren't lower, but rather they were co-equal. We're, we're to walk as companions through life, fulfilling God's purpose for us together. Eve was made as a help meet or perfectly fit, fitting uh, Adam, not as a subordinate, um, even though we find some of that coming later on. But, uh, but in that day, uh, and particularly in Jewish society, women... Were, were, were regarded much lower. In fact, there was a prayer that used to be prayed in, prayed in Orthodox Christian circles, or Orthodox Jewish circles, not Christian, uh, <clears throat> and that evidently is still prayed today among some of the ultra-Orthodox. But here's the way, or this is part of the way that prayer read. It was, thank you, Lord, that I am not a slave, not a Gentile, and not a woman. And those were actually gradually lowering views. It's unfortunate. Unbelievable, I, I think, that that's the way it was. I hope that that's not prayed anymore. The, the, the next thing we learn about her is that she was proud, she was skeptical, and she was intelligent. In the U.S., we would describe this kind of person, and you see it reflected in a number of ways. She was street smart, okay? She knew how to get around. She was clever. I mean, she, you know, she, was not, uh, she was not unintelligent in any ways. But first we see her pride. 
as you read verse 9, and you can read it, uh, if, if, if you will, again, um, <clears throat> I read resentment and perhaps a little sarcasm in her question. In effect, she seems to be saying, you think you're better than us, you Jews. Why would you ask me for a drink? How dare you? And so she, she's actually, um, uh, she's proud, and she is, she's not about to receive any, anything just on, on the surface from this Jewish rabbi. And that's, that's how he would have been, been regarded. Um, uh, and then secondly, we see her as being skeptical. When he talks about this water that he could give her that would well up into, into you know, springs of life within her, that kind of thing, you, you see what her response? You know, you have nothing to draw with. Where are you going to get this water? Come on. I'm not, I'm not going to be fooled by, by you or, 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 or someone else uh, like you. And then she says, she kind of demands, then give it to me. You know, seeing is believing. You, you, you show me, and then maybe I'll, I'll, I'll believe you. The third, the, the third thing we see there is that she was smart. She was intelligent. When he begins to bore in on her life, go, go, go bring your husband. You know, after she says, I have no husband, and he reveals this to her, the next thing he, she does is she tries to get him distracted with theological arguments. You Jews worship in that mountain there. We, we worship in this mountain. You know, let's have a theological debate because I don't want you penetrating my heart and my life, okay? And, in fact, some of the, some of the, uh, the savviness, some of the street smartness, some of the intelligence, the cleverness that you see, she had somehow convinced five different men to marry her. You know, think about that. You know, that's tough. I mean, this is a woman that has figured out how to make it through life, given, given the conditions. And even now, the man she's living with, it appears that she refuses to be married to him, not the reverse. Okay? She's, in essence, kind of worn out, trying to find a man that could somehow... Um, deliver the goods, you know, uh, um, provide for her, really meet, meet her deepest needs. The third thing we learn about, about her here is also her disappointment with life. You see it reflected in verse 15. You also see it uh, reflected in 17. But in 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming. The verb that we have in the original text is the present tense, not not, it, it's not punctiliar, but it's rather, I have to keep coming here day after day, day after day, midday. I don't want to come when all the women will gossip about me and criticize me and that sort of thing. You know, I am tired. And she's tired of life in a number of different ways. She's also emotionally alone. When she makes this statement, I have no husband, he actually takes that as a confession. There may be a note of defiance in that response, but I think what she's saying is that no man has ever been faithful to me. No man has ever been able to provide for my deepest needs. And I've bounced from one relationship to the next relationship, hoping against hope that I would find somebody that would love me, that would care for me, that would care about me, that would literally accept me as I really am. 
but she had not found it. Um, it. I think it's clear that every man had had disappointed her, and she's not excited about it by the, enough about the man that she's with in order to even engage in that. So many, many times, what's emphasized in the text are the dissimilarities between this woman and us. And even as you read the text this morning, you might be thinking of her, them, rather than me, us. But I want to suggest to you that she is more like us than what we might dare to think. Um, <clears throat> I've been in ministry a long time, uh, more than 45 years. Um, I've been a Christian 50 years, so you can maybe do the, do the addition, I'm now 55. <laughs> but I've, I've done ministry, I've planted four churches, I've, I've been on the pastor staff of a couple other ones, and um, I've worked on five continents at that point. I, I don't mean to brag at all, but here's what I found. People everywhere are essentially the same. Doesn't matter what your national origin is. Doesn't matter the color of your skin. Doesn't matter whether you're old or young, or you've been highly educated or not educated. Whether you're wealthy or whether whether you're poor or, or something in between. Really, we want all the, we want the same things. I think that's what she wanted too. We want to we want to be happy. We want to be loved. We want to experience a measure of security. And raise our children in an environment where they're, where, they're, where they're secure as well. And hopefully, they will even do better than what we do. Uh, even as Sam was talking about young Sam here, just graduating from junior high school, got a future ahead of him. I'm going to start praying for Sam. That the Lord will do a work in his life. And the Lord will grant him his hopes and dreams. But the Lord will use them in, ama in amazing ways in the future. That's what we want for our children, is it not? We want our kids to do well. We want our lives to mean something. We really want our lives to be, uh, to have been worth living. I think that's what she wanted. So we're, we're really not that different. I think sometimes, though, we get so busy, you know, in life that we really, really don't think about the meaning and purpose, you know, kinds of issues. So let me ask you, <clears throat> what, was, ooh, what was driving her life? We've talked a little bit about who she is. What was driving her life? What did, what, did the, what, what did she think would actually make her life work that would give her that happiness, that would give her that love, you know, all those kinds of things? Uh, I think it becomes pretty evident in the course of the conversation here as, as Jesus is, is talking to her. Uh, and maybe this is a little bit of a push, but I think what she believed, if, they, if she could only find the right man, she'd be happy. You know, there, I, although there, there's multiple reasons and motivations, you know, that, that control our lives, but oftentimes, many of us, I, I would say all of us, end up coming to a point that, that, we, that we end up believing this is what will make my life work. In one sense, finding the right man was her gospel. Now, that may sound weird to talk about it that way, but whatever you think, whatever you believe, so believing is stronger than think, Whatever you believe will actually put your life together, will make your life worth, worth living, is essentially your gospel. I lived for 10 years in New York. New Yorkers are a funny bunch. They're among the most driven people I've ever met in, in, in the world. They're driven by a variety of different things, but many of them actually think, you know, like this woman, if I can just find the right man or right woman, 
uh, and, 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 they, and get them to love me, that my life will work. Actually, the American gospel used to be this. I think it still is in, in certain ways. At least the one I believed was, if, if I could just marry a beautiful woman and make a lot of money, I'd be happy. I'd live happily ever after. <clears throat> you know what the problem is? If fame or power or pleasure or a person or your children's success or earning, you know, the advanced degree or becoming the top violinist or becoming the best drummer in the world or, or you know, whatever it is. You know what the problem with that dream is? Even if it's achieved, it's empty. It will not deliver. It will not meet the deepest needs and longings of your heart. I, I, for a while, I planted a church in just outside of New York City in what um, at that time I think was the wealthiest place in the world. And, uh, you know, incredibly wealthy people. <clears throat> One of the guys in the church uh, whose wife had come to Christ and his daughters had, had come to Christ. But one of the guys that was connected to the church, one spring, received a bonus from his company of $365 million. <laughs> Almost half a billion dollars. And that's apart from his salary and apart from the house he'd been given and all those, all those kinds of things. Here's what I found on the North Shore. None of them believed that things would make them happy because they had it all. So there was no hint of materialism. Money in that, in that society was about status and power. But even the status that they gained through it or the power that, that they gained at it didn't deliver the goods. Most of the men I met in that, in that context and, and progressively many of the women, probably half the women because they were kind of moving in the same direction, seeking the same kinds of goals that a lot of the men did. Even though they were among the wealthiest, they were also the loneliest people I'd ever met in my life. Most of them had no clue as to whether, or not, whether or not they had any real friends. Because people were always relating to them, or they feared that they were relating to them for something. For promotion, for extra business, for, you know, uh, for uh, an increase in salary, for a donation, whatever it was. So they had no idea whether anybody loved them. I, I don't think there's any mystery about why a number of men in the New Testament Gospels, why they came alone to him. The rich young ruler, Nicodemus at night, any number of men, they come alone. They don't, they don't want to risk a reputation, but they come alone because they are alone. And Jesus speaks directly, directly to them. A few years ago, I was sitting in a... a a new, uh, new church service in Brussels. And uh, there was a woman there that morning who um, uh, she had been physically hurt pretty badly. And I heard her story later. But she had been in a, a, a marriage that was actually, I think, probably somewhat ideal. It was a great marriage. And while, she, while her husband was alive, she was happy. But I think he was taken by a disease or, or something. She wasn't very old. She was probably 50-ish in that ballpark, but once he was gone, her life began to fall apart. She had, she had, they had been living for their relationship. She had been living you know, for him. And once he was gone, she, she came to a point where she felt like life wasn't worth living anymore. So she had thrown herself out of a third story window and she, had, you know, she, she hurt herself terribly, broke any number of bones in her body. She wasn't successful in killing herself. And, but that's, 
you know, even, even the best of marriages, even if your children are amazing kids, even if you earn all the money, even if you get to the next level in whatever the occupation is or whatever, those things don't deliver the goods. They just, that's the emptiness of what we would call false gods. Um, you see, I, I think one of the, the things I find interesting about this woman at, at, at the well is that um, her prim primary concern was not about the life hereafter. Although the gospel, I think, actually is about eternal life, it's also about now. And so even, even here, her concern was, where can I get the water? Where can I be relieved of all the suffering and the weariness? Where can I find the love and acceptance that, that I, that I so, so desperately need? But the sad irony for her and all of us is that the things of earth never really satisfy. Although they may help momentarily or for a short time, ultimately they will not deliver the goods for us. They can add to some of the joys of life. They maybe lessen some of the sorrows and those kinds of things. But there's no, no amount of money, no friend, no husband or wife, no power, no pleasure, no possessions, no privilege, none of that kind of stuff that can, that's strong enough to make our lives work. And in fact, if we try to get our needs met through those things, they're ultimately self-destructive. So let me go back to marriage. If you're hoping or believing or thinking that your husband or your wife is going to meet your deepest needs and that everything's going to be all right, and if you're depending on that, if you make that ultimate, you will actually destroy your marriage. Because no person can guarantee the happiness of another person. Uh, an old um, uh, a, um, philosopher by the name of Blaise Pascal at one point, and, and he had become a, a believer, but at one point he describes the need of the human heart. But he said, within every human heart, there's a God-shaped vacuum that until that vacuum is fulfilled, all of your life ends up being corrupted. The only way marriages really work, the only way they become that, those companionships that are so life-giving and so good, and marriage is actually good, by the way. Don't, don't get me wrong, marriage is a very, very good thing. A, a, a difficult marriage is not so good, you know, but it's, it's actually better, th better than being alone. But until that need, that deep need within you is filled, you will try to get from your partner, you'll try to get them to fill that need, and it's too much for any, anyone to bear. When that need is filled, it gives you the power to love unconditionally. So you can work through the difficulties. You can work through the offenses that we make to each other. You can work through all, the, all, all those kinds of things. The gospel is basically not only good news about eternal life, it's actually the gospel is about life here and now. And I'm, don't, don't misunderstand me. I mean, as we're coming along the road this morning, I looked at all these different church signs, and most of them seem to be prosperity theology churches. We're not talking about a prosperity theology, okay? But we are talking about that God does care about, he, about you, and he can change the reality of your life now. You, you may not become wealthy, but you can become joyful and peaceful. And you, and you have a means to deal with the suffering of life as, as it comes to you. So... What happened at that well? How did this interaction with Jesus change her? Um, Sam read verse 39 there. Let me, let me reread it to you. It says there that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And many more believed. I think that's an indication that this woman came to real faith in Christ that morning. I think it's a, that's a, a, a valid um, conclusion to draw there. And then they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So what happens, uh, you know, there uh, when, when, when she's, uh, she's talking to him? Um, well, this interchange it reflects that she believed and she was changed. In fact, when she goes in the village to give testimony to it, the villagers who scorn her, and I, I think, now, I may be wrong on this, so Sam, you can correct it after I, after I leave if you want, but, but I think the last verse, and people dis, you know, will disagree about this, but the last verse reflects that they still scorn her even after she came to faith. Did you pick that up? Now we believe not because of you, but because of him. They're putting her back in her place once again. Even when we come to Christ, we still will, can oftentimes bear shame. It doesn't change everything in our, our reality. But this interchange with him changed her to the degree that the, that the people came out to, to meet Jesus. And then they believed as, as, as well. She believed and she was changed. Now, personally, I don't like to use um, short summaries of the gospel. They usually don't say enough, um, but oftentimes we have to find ways to summarize the gospel in order to communicate it in any kind of efficient way or intelligible way you know, to, to other people. But the, 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 the brief version of the gospel that we tended to use in New York, I still, I still use it. Tim Keller learned it actually from another um, brother that uh, we both respected, Jack Miller. But the, the, the form of the gospel that we tended to use there was this. You are more sinful and flawed than what you've ever dared to believe. And yet, you can be more loved and accepted than what you've ever dared to hope. Listen to that. You are more sinful and flawed than what you've ever dared to believe. Even now as a Christian, you are more sinful and flawed than what you dare to believe right now. And yet, you are more loved and accepted because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. That's the reality in which we live. That's a powerful gospel. That's what, that's what, that's, that's what she experienced. We, all of us, are probably more like this woman than what we allow ourselves to believe. There's a number of different times in, in, in the Bible that um, we have references to not being able to see God, not being able to stand before God, you know, that, and if we did, We'd literally be struck dead, or it would shock us, you know, and, and we would literally fall down as if, as if dead. I think that, that that's the reality for us. <clears throat> Here I am, I'm 69 years old. If, if you didn't do the math before, I just gave it to you. But, <laughs> okay, I was young, and now I'm old, or at least I'm getting older, you know. <laughs> I, st I, still, I still push that off a bit, but here's the reality. I've been a Christian for 50 years. I'm still sinful. You know, month to month, the Holy Spirit continues to reveal the nuances of my sin. I'm more sophisticated in my sin. I don't commit adultery. You know, I don't rob banks. You know, I don't murder people. Oh, but I do it in the subtle ways. You've heard it was said, thou shalt not commit murder. But I say to you, 
Anyone who calls someone else raka, fool, anyone else who passes judgment on another, you're committing that, that very sin. Our sin gets so subtle. That's why we constantly need the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, as I said before, New, Yorker, New Yorkers are kind of a funny lot, and they're driven by any number of different uh, uh, idols. It's fame and fortune, money, power, prestige, privilege, pleasure, all those things. But let me tell you about one person that came to Christ. Her name was Mary Ellen, and uh, she and her husband had both been converted uh, in Manhattan, somehow through the ministry of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, which I think this church is named after. Is it? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe it's actually named after Jesus, right? But, <laughs> but Mary Ellen had come to Christ uh, a number of years before this. She and her husband were part of a new little group that wanted to plant a church about 70 miles east of Manhattan. And I was working with this group, you know, helping them to figure out how to, how to form a core group and develop a church and uh, perhaps get a pastor and that sort of thing. But at one point I asked Mary Ellen, you know, Mary Ellen, I know you came to Christ in New York, you know, some years ago. I don't know. I've never heard the story. Would you mind telling me the story? And she said, oh, I'd be glad to. So she launches out on this story. You know, she was a bond broker on New York. That means that she was in the financial district. Uh, and she said there were about 30 people in her office, and it was usually very, very busy, but at times it would, it would get quiet. And in the quiet times, you know, we'd talk about the latest movie you might have seen or the, you know, the, the play or, you know, some, some musician that you really like or sometimes politics. It's really dangerous to talk about politics in New York right now. Okay. It's way too divided. Uh, I'm sure Ghana is not divided politically, right? <laughs> um, and she said sometimes we would talk about religion and she said there was one guy in the office that was a believer but he was one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet so the New Yorkers conception of believers were they're anti-intellectual they're obnoxious they're pushy you know they're 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 not nice people to deal with isn't that terrible that that's that was a reputation for many born-again believers in new york but that's the way they, they were regarded but chip was one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet and he always had some of the most interesting perspectives on our discussions as we talk about things so what would happen is from time to time i would go to him she was raised in a roman catholic church made her first communion at seven and then never had to go to church again so she had left completely so she's a de-churched person, but she had religious questions. So, Chip, how can there be a God if there is so much suffering in the world? Is Jesus the only way? Do I have to believe that my Jewish friends, my Muslim friends, my Hindu friends are all lost? Is that, is that true? Is, it, is that the reality? So Chip would be able to answer some of her questions Sometimes he felt like he was inadequate. So at one point he said to her, you know, Mary Ellen, I think you need to come to this church I've been going to. Um, and at that point, Redeemer was pretty much unknown. And Tim Keller was not a famous world figure uh, as, as he became uh, later on. But, um, but Chip said, the guy that, that talks there answers these kinds of questions all the time. So because of the relationship with Chip, Mary Ellen decided to go. But she, br she brought five girlfriends with her, okay? She brought her posse, you know, because she didn't want to get stuck in a cult or something like that, okay? There was a lot of suspicion about churches in, in New York. So, they, so she said, we, we went this one Sunday night, five of us together, yeah, and I said, well, what was it like? She said, well, it, it, was, it was nice. You know, the music was kind of like a cool jazz sound, which was very appropriate for New York. 
and and the service was fine, you know. Um, and then when when the guy get up to the, when the guy get up to give give the lecture, okay, um, it, it was interesting. At times it was funny, but it was also profoundly disturbing. Hmm. So now I don't want to um, um, disturb you here, but they all went out to a bar to get a drink afterwards. Okay, so five non-Christians. Uh, or maybe it's six of them, I think, because I think she brought five girlfriends, six of them, and they couldn't help but talk about what the preacher had, had talked about in the message. And I said, okay, so, so then what happened? Well, we all went back the next week. In fact, there were nine of us the next week. And for three months, there were about nine of us that were going, and it was probably a group of maybe 15 people, but about nine every Sunday night, we'd go to service, we'd end up going out to, a, to get a drink, and we'd end up talking about what, the, what this guy, this preacher, had talked about. She said, sometimes we really argued. I said, what do you mean you argued? Well, she said, we almost got kicked out of the bar one night. Really? Why? Well, here, here, here's, here's what Tim had done that night. He had described, here's what New Yorkers actually believe. And he'd argued from all the pursuits that they were going after. You believe that if you find the right mate, you'll be happy. You believe if you make enough money, you'll be happy. You believe if you gain power, you'll be happy. You believe if you, if you have this pleasure-filled life, you'll be happy. You believe if you get the Broadway part on the, you know, the part in the Broadway play, you'll be happy. Or the lead in, in, in a film, or all these dreams that people have, or become a rock star, you know, those kinds of things. So he, he argued that that's really your belief system. And then what he did is he demonstrated how all of those are empty. They'll never deliver the promise on the promises. Then he offered the gospel as the only plausible uh, um, you know, uh, thing that would deliver what they really need. Finding somebody who would love and accept you and work within you to make you the person that you actually would, would become. All right, so how did the story end? Oh, I'm sorry, I should finish that story. So, uh, so this guy was furious at what Tim had said. He said, that's not what I believe. So here you had eight non-Christians arguing with another non-Christian that, that the preacher was right and that he was wrong. They were doing apologetics. I mean, that's, that's a curious thing. And that's how they almost got kicked out of the bar. So I said, so how did the story end? She said, well, after about three months, what effectively had been done, that Tim did, is he had, he had removed kind of one by one my objections. Or he set aside my questions in such a way that I could no longer hang on to them. I couldn't believe that Jesus was just a good moral teacher or just a great moral example or any of those kinds of things anymore. I felt like I was standing face to face with Christ and I had to make a decision about him. That was it. The last hurdle for me, and you may find this humorous, but the last hurdle for me was I realized that if I became a Christian, I would have to consider Benny Hinn, Pat Robertson, Jerry Fowle at that time, somebody else, and George Bush, my brothers in Christ. And that was hard for her. I mean, because politically, she was at the other end of the spectrum. She regarded all those people as cultural terrorists. Okay, that, that, that was kind of her, her perspective. But she said, I, uh, I, I, I could not deny the reality of who Jesus was. It was kind of the Lord liar lunatic of, uh, that C.S. Lewis talked about. He either really is the Lord himself, or he is a raving lunatic, or he's just a complete fraud. She could no longer believe he was a lunatic or, or a fraud. So he must be the Lord. 
So she bent to the knee to Christ, and she came, she came to him. And he changed her life. I mean, that's, that's the reality. In this text, Jesus is interacting back and forth with her. He doesn't let her get off the you know, sidetrack or anything else. And, and it comes to the end. To, to, really, the conclusion of the text is in verse 26, I think it is. Or maybe it's 28. Let me, let me pick it back up. That's not where it is. Ah, it, it's um, uh, verse 25. The woman said, uh, said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell you all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am, to you am he. What he was saying to her, I am the true husband that you've been seeking. I am the one that can fulfill that need. He's presenting himself to her. That's the gospel. There's no call to repentance and faith and baptism. And, and all, all those things are, are accurate and right. But the, the true gospel is Christ entering into your life and can change you. Earlier in, in the gospel of John, you have this amazing statement that I've used over and over and over again. But as many as received him, to them that believed on his name, to them he gave the power to become children of God. That's a powerful verse. God opens the door to him through Christ. We can gain that relationship that changes everything. Our lives here and our lives in the future as well. I don't know if you're here this morning, I've never come to that point where you've literally received Christ and you've asked him to come into your life and change you. It happened to me 50 years ago, or not a little bit more than 50 years ago. He changed my life. He can change yours, and he can change the lives and reality of all those who live around you. That's our hope for the future. Let's pray together.